Welcome to Sparking Wholeness, where we talk all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Erin Carey. I'm a survivor of bipolar disorder and a self-proclaimed nutrition nerd who loves asking why. As a certified integrative nutrition health coach, my goal is to help people find balance, and I want to help you find ways to spark wholeness in your life. For more information, check out sparkingwholeness.com or on the Instagram handle, Sparking Wholeness. And now, get ready for today's awesome show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sparking Wholeness. This is Erin Carey, and today I am joined by... Dana Lee Bagley. And J- Dana is a PhD. She's a clinical psychologist. She specializes in helping people to be healthier. What I love that she also says is that she exercises regularly, rarely enjoys it, and is a runner who never gets a runner's high. She's also the author of the book, Healthy Habits Suck. And just that title itself was enough for me to have to read it and have to talk to her. So thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about this book. I want to share with everybody because they can't see the cover, but I'm looking at a um, box, a carton of, or a box of French fries, but inside the box is asparagus <laughs> instead of French fries. And I, that's so funny and so appealing to me. So I would love to hear what your intent was in writing this book and then also kind of your background in the whole topic as a psychologist. Yeah, um, you know, the cover, I think, also reflects that no one ever binge eats on broccoli. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so my background is that I'm a clinical health psychologist, so I work with people who have chronic disease, um, and so most of my day is spent um, helping people try to be healthier, and that sometimes includes people um, who have life-threatening conditions or chronic conditions. And so the purpose of the book was really to try and share that information um, that I uh, work with with patients every day more broadly than that. So one of the, you know, one of the things that is important to me is about accessibility. And many people don't have access to a psychologist or to the psychological knowledge that could help them be healthier. So that's part of writing the book for me was to try to share, you know, evidence-based, scientific based information with people who might not normally have access to a psychologist or be able to see a psychologist so that they could make use of these tools also to be healthier. Yeah. And I love that you do it in a way that it's not um, so sciencey that it's hard to read. You know, um, yeah. it, there are some funny parts. There are a lot of relatable parts. Um, and I would love for you to share a little bit about your personal experience, uh, maybe a little about your health journey that you share in the book that also ties into, I mean, you, you practice what you preach, right? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it was also for me that when I got separated a few years ago, I put on like 40 pounds. And so was that one of like the higher weights that I've been my whole life. And up to that point, I really, you know, had done some things to manage my weight, but it hadn't been a huge struggle. And at that point, it suddenly became a huge struggle. And so I was doing all these healthy things. I was you know, running 10K races, and I was watching what I was eating, and I was not losing a single pound. And so, um, and this had been things that, you know, my patients had talked about before, and I always had believed them, but it was the first time I personally had experienced it. And so I had to figure out how am I going to keep doing these things that I know are healthy for me when it's not actually helping me with my weight. 
And so it was really actually just applying all the things that I've been talking to um, patients about, um, you know, that my job was to do my healthy habits and what my body does with that isn't up to me. Um, <laughs> and so there's definitely um, stories in the book that are like my own experiences as well as patient experiences and all of that kind of tied together with the science behind it. But again, hopefully in a way that's accessible to people. So that's like real life and usable you know, my day to day is actually like in the trenches in a public hospital. Um, and so to make it useful information that people can um, apply to their daily lives. I love that. And I related so much to that because I think that we forget that, yes, we can do all of the quote healthy things. We can make all the changes. Um, but so many of us are driven just by the weight loss and we don't see the impact that it's making on our mental well-being and feeling better. And we'd rather just look at a number on the scale. Um, and that's something I'm passionate about because I've been through that myself where stress takes over um, and my body likes to store weight when I'm stressed. <laughs> like yeah. it just happens. And, and there's yeah. a lot of reasons for that, which I think we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but I want to hear- There's lots of evidence about that too, that stress really? does, right? It's a, it's a yeah. myth that like how much you eat and how much you exercise are the only things that influence weight. There's a ton of other factors, yes. including stress and I really didn't actually make any dent in my weight until I actually was like fully divorced like all mm -hmm. you know the stress level went down um, and I really didn't change my habits but it was really the stress for me also that impacts it and so um, yeah. that's the trouble with focusing on the numbers it doesn't really prompt us to keep going so it's also about like finding other reasons to be healthy um, and one of, I think one of the best ones related to diet is really about showing up as like a high performing person, right? Like eating good foods, not because you're trying to manage your weight, but because that helps you think more clearly or you have more energy or, right, it's helping you do something that matters to you in your day to day life. Because um, again, the actual you know, eating healthy kind of sucks. It doesn't right. <laughs> feel as good as like eating uh -huh. fatties, sugary, healthy foods. So, yeah. you know, we have to find a reason on a moment to moment basis to choose that over, you know, what actually is going to feel better in the short term. Yeah, no, so true. And we, we are people who just live in the short term, you know, all we see is the here and now. And, and you give a lot of, um, I guess, biological evidence for why we think that way too, right? So maybe you could go into that, like how our brains are um, wired to avoid the hard things and, and not want to make these changes. So what's that about? Yeah. Yeah, so part of our brain was really formed in, you know, cave person times, and I refer to it as like the caveman survival brain. Um, this part of our brain is responsible for things like emotions, automatic thoughts, learning, memory, um, appetite regulation, and it is excellently well suited to being a cave person. Uh, mm -hmm. However, our life was much different when we were cave people. So mm -hmm. our life expectancy was about 30. So you didn't have to worry about long-term anything. You absolutely were living for what was going to work right here, right now. Mm -hmm. We got the same amount of exercise that triathletes get nowadays just to mm -hmm. survive. And so yeah. if you had a chance to rest, you should totally rest, right? And so we function on these principles of avoid um, pain, seek pleasure, take the path of least resistance and live for today. And as a cave person, that is excellent advice. Now, if you're trying to do a healthy habit, it actually requires you to avoid pleasure. You shouldn't have that ice cream. To accept pain, you should go for a run. To do the thing that takes the most amount of effort, you should take the stairs and not the elevator and to live for the future. Don't you know that might kill you in 20 years? 
<laughs> and so healthy habits really violate the way our brain is hardwired. And our survival caveman brain is not something that you have control over. So you can't turn it on. You can't turn it off. It functions automatically. It functions outside of conscious awareness. And so we can't change anything about that. Um, what we do have control over is through our frontal lobe, which um, is the most recently evolved part of our brain, and it only controls behavior. And so that's why we focus a lot on changing behaviors rather than changing motivation or changing feelings because we have a lot more control over our behavior because it's actually coming from a different part of our brain than all these other signals um, which are coming from our caveman brain. Yeah, that is so much information um, that is so important to understand because we aren't, nobody tells us this, you know, like we're all about, well, if go reach your goals, like in our culture, and you, you reference that a lot in the book, you know, it's like, oh, well, just do what you need to do and go make your goals happen. And that's just in the day to day, that's not practical. You know, for most people, we have a lot of things that are distracting us. We have a lot of things that are taking us away from these goals that are so abstract in our head. So um, with that, maybe you can talk about the goals and values um, piece that you explain in the book, because that was an, a big aha for me. And that, you know, when I shifted my eating habits, it was more for mental health reasons. And that was the most that's the only way I've ever been able to sustain any habit changes is because I know I need to do this for my brain. Um, and I know I need to do that for my kids. And like, I had all of these reasons as opposed to, well, I just need to lose 20 pounds. You know, that didn't help me. So maybe you could explain a little bit about the difference between goals and values and, and how that can really help somebody make a healthy habit stick. Yeah, so our culture is very obsessed with goals, and goals are things that happen or don't happen, right? And there's nothing wrong with goals. Um, it's just that goals don't prompt long-term behavior. So once you, like, take, for example, setting weight as a goal, some goal weight, mm -hmm. right? Um, if you're successful and you get to the goal weight, the way we understand goals in our culture is that once you've achieved a goal, you stop working on it and you yeah. move on to the next goal. <laughs> and so once you achieve your goal weight, you don't keep working on that goal, you've achieved it. And so it doesn't prompt long-term behavior. More likely is that you don't get your, to your goal weight or that your efforts aren't resulting um, in consistent weight loss. And that's again, because there's multiple factors that influence um, your weight that we don't have control over. Mm -hmm. And so if all of your efforts are not resulting in the outcomes that you want, then why would you do it? Because they do suck. And so um, goal setting around like weight or health often doesn't prompt long-term behavior. Values, on the other hand, are about how you want to show up in life. They're about how you want to be, what matters to you, the kind of qualities or characteristics of how you want to show up or how you want to be known in the world. And they can prompt more longer term behavior because they're things that we want to keep doing and keep being. And so examples of this are things like um, being an engaged parent, being a high performing person, being creative, being authentic. These are all ways of being that you can do on a moment to moment basis. They're not just a one time goal that happens or doesn't happen. You can choose to show up like that on a moment to moment basis. And when we can link our behaviors, our healthy habits to these values, then we're much more likely to keep doing them. So for example, if I wanna be an engaged parent, and there's probably a variety of different things that I do to 
um, show up as an engaged parent. So I might like help my kid with their homework or go to their sports or know who they're hanging out with. But I could also see that going to the gym isn't like me time or selfish time. It's actually another way that I show up as a parent I want to be. Mm. And if you are a parent, you're used to doing all kinds of crappy things in the service <laughs> of being a parent you want to be. So going to the gym can be just one more crappy thing you do mm. in the service of being the parent you want to be. So this is actually totally already in our wheelhouse. We do difficult things all the time in the service of our values. It's just helping us see that these healthy habits aren't just to lose weight or they aren't just to be healthy, that those um, are helping us be the people we want to be, right? So health is actually not a value. It's a domain. No, it's not. What is health going to help you do? What? Why would being here more, you know, being on earth for more years, how's that going to help you? Uh-huh. Why is that important to be here? What do you need to do? Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember working with one woman who was trying to quit drinking and she, you know, said, what she wanted to do more of if she could manage her drinking better was to do more laundry. And I was like, well, no wonder you don't want to quit drinking. I wouldn't quit (laughs) drinking if it meant I had to do more laundry either. Right. So that's not a, that's not important enough, you know, to um, manage our caveman brain. And so eventually we got around to actually, she wanted to socialize more and she wanted to have people over more. And if she was managing her drinking better, she could keep her house cleaner um, and be able to have people over and socialize. Now that totally makes sense as a reason yeah. to do these like habits that suck, right? But just so you can do more laundry, like just so you can sit on the couch, like why would you ever do that? So, you know, answering the question of what's going to make it worth it for you to do the hard work of being healthy uh, rather than trying to make the healthy habit easier. Yeah, I think that that's so that's such a missing piece in the whole discussion of goals and making changes. Um, And we're coming out of, you know, when everybody was setting their New Year's resolution, I'm sure everybody had a goal that already is long gone, you know, (laughs) because there wasn't the value piece associated. And And so I actually like wrote a blog for psychology today about like setting New Year's resolutions. And it was, again, about like, what do you want more of or less of in your life? And how do you have to show up to make that happen Mm -hmm. right and so to again to try and pull in values into your new year's resolutions rather than goals yeah and most people at this point are not they're they're not continuing with their new year's resolutions yeah yeah exactly it's it's crazy um maybe you know what i really like i liked you talking about just because my background is as a nutrition coach um i love when you talked about weight and the problem solving brain because we love to think that weight is something that we can just you know eat less and exercise more that's not the case as you kind of already referenced um but maybe you can share a little bit more about that because I, you dropped some nuggets of truth there that I was like, yeah, I was so excited you were sharing it. Right. So, um, you know, weight is actually, again, it's managed by your caveman brain and it is attached to an evolutionary system designed to make sure that humans don't starve to death and starving to death has been a problem for the human race for millions of years. It continues to be a problem. As we speak, there are humans on the planet who are starving to death. So this is not a problem that humans have solved. And so we actually have system after system after system to make sure that we don't starve to death. And this includes things like um, reducing your metabolism when you lose weight, 
uh, food actually smells better and tastes better. You have, like after you lose weight, um, yeah. you have increased cravings. You're actually less satisfied by the food when you actually eat it. So you have bigger uh -huh. cravings, but you're less satisfied with it. Now, if you've just been starving to death, then that is a fantastic way to make sure you put the weight back on. Right, all these systems totally make sense from a caveman perspective. So I often like to say, you know those skinny girls in the magazines? <laughs> they don't survive a long winter. They're not getting through a famine. That is not adaptive from an evolutionary perspective to be that skinny. You don't have any reserves in the case of like some kind of disaster. Right. And so we have all these systems that are designed to make sure we don't starve to death that you have zero control over. They are in your survival brain. They're not things you can turn on or turn off. And so you basically have to use your frontal lobe to be able to manage those factors. Again, uh, weight is also hugely, you know, determined by genetic factors. Yes. They've um, done studies of babies who are two weeks old, and they can show changes in the way their brains are interpreting food cues um, as a result of whether their, their mothers had obesity or not. And so this is, again, from an evolutionary perspective, um, the way the brain understands it, typically people who have, um, have obesity have lost and gained weight a lot during their lives. Yes. In fact, they've probably lost more weight than someone who's been, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote, um, normal weight their whole lives. The way the brain interprets that, you know, the caveman brain is like, oh, we live somewhere where food is scarce because periodically we go through these famines, right? When you go on a diet, our caveman brain is like, oh, we live somewhere where food is scarce and where we might have to go through famines. So, you know, in part, what happens is that the brain like helps the baby be better suited to this environment where food is sometimes scarce uh, by changing the way the brain interprets food cues so that they'll be better able to put on weight to survive these famines. And that is like an evolutionary thing of preparing this infant for the world that they're about to go into. You have zero control over that. That is happening in two-week-old babies, right? So there's so many factors that influence weight that we don't have control over. And so um, that's just important. And again, if you use weight as a goal, you're going to be frustrated at some point because your efforts will not result in the goal that you want because there are simply too many factors that we don't control. Mm -hmm. There's actually studies showing um, that there's a subset of people who are very thin um, but have terrible eating habits and their genetics have actually protected them from gaining weight. Yeah. And so, and they've found this. And so it, there's a really a huge contribution that we don't have control over. So again, to try to, rather than focusing on weight, focus on being healthy and how those healthy habits are going to help you be the person you want to be in this world. Because then you can make it something that you can stick with. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I like to make the joke that um, I store weight because my ancestors survived during famine, right? Like, I mean, That's I should, exactly it. I should you be are our ancestor. About that. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, my body knows what to do when I restrict yeah. it with food. And so, yeah. And, yeah, and I just think that we have such a warped view of weight and, and, BMI and all of that anyway, that, um, that's not what it's all about at the end of the day is, it's what our BMI is. And like you, you referenced some studies, there are studies that people with a little higher BMI actually live longer. So, you know, there's just a lot out there that, um, people aren't aware of. And I just, am so glad you brought light to that because. Yeah. And BMI is not like the best predictor of health. It's no, not a it's direct not. correlation. No. Um, there's lots of elite athletes like who actually would be classified as having obesity, even though they're elite <laughs> athletes and clearly are not, right? And so it's, you know, one, the, the, 
the way I define obesity um, as a chronic condition is when excess weight is causing medical or psychological complications, mm. which means you can have excess weight that isn't causing medical or psychological complications with mm. is just extra weight. It's not pathological. Mm. It's not problematic. Yeah. It's not a chronic disease. It's only when it's causing those kinds of complications that then we should treat it as a chronic disease, mm. the same way we treat diabetes or heart disease in which case you actually need a whole bunch of interventions, right? There's no other chronic condition where the only intervention is lifestyle, right? Um, right. Diet and exercise is not a treatment for the chronic condition of obesity. Um, mm -hmm. It does not work for most people. You actually mm -hmm. need to be supported by other factors such as medication, surgery, psychotherapy to be able to keep up the lifestyle interventions. But Lifestyle modifications are not a treatment in and of themselves yeah. for people who have the chronic condition of obesity. And there's no other chronic condition where we do that, right? We do not treat cardiovascular disease or strokes or diabetes or cancer with only lifestyle intervention. Yep. It's, it's a right? double so standard. It's a yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, you take somebody who is the you know, ideal weight, whatever that might be of the time, and say they're having all of the same issues that somebody who is a in a larger body would have, and they're not going to tell them to diet and exercise. And so there's a lot of double standards out there that's just really not fair. And I, you know, even for me, like, sure, I could bust my tail and, and really make myself go crazy and try to lose 20, 30 pounds, but it would probably result in mental instability, more yeah. stress, body yeah. systems going crazy. You know, women right. lose their periods over this. So, you yeah. know, all, all there's to say, a, a yeah. term in the literature called best weight, and it's the smallest number of calories you can eat and still enjoy your life. Right, which is like there is a trade-off. It takes yeah. an enormous amount of frontal lobe um, control um, to be able to manage diet, especially because we live in an environment that is not at all conducive to healthy choices. Right, yeah. so I'll often say like, if you're a cocaine addict, you can like live the rest of your life never encountering <laughs> cocaine again. Right, but uh -huh. if you feel like you're a food addict, you know, uh, most of the time when I go to a holiday party, there's no cocaine on the table. No judgment if your parties have a down cocaine <laughs> on the table, right? But mine don't. They will, however, be covered with unhealthy foods um, to eat. Mm -hmm. And that will be common in workplaces, in holiday parties, like name a holiday that doesn't involve food. Uh, Remembrance Day was the only one we could come up with, right? That has not yet been commercialized into a food activity. Oh, so true. So, um, you know, it's just to keep that in mind. Yeah, no, it's good. And it's our food has been designed for us to keep eating it. Like, that's the yeah, reason. Like, they want us to keep buying. Billions of dollars yeah. <laughs> to make us want to eat more of it, yeah. right? If mm. you drive home, you're going to be, you're going to encounter all kinds of food cues, both from the fast food restaurants that you pass and the billboards that you pass. So, our lives are not at all designed to, um, you know, support healthy choices. And so it takes a lot of frontal lobe to be able to make healthy choices. And either you have to work on making sure you're recharged, like the frontal lobe's like a battery, right? And we mm. spend it all day long um, controlling our behavior. And that's why binge eating, for example, is more likely to happen in the yeah. evenings than in the morning because you've spent your frontal lobe battery. Mm -hmm. So it either means that you need to, you know, focus on recharging your frontal lobe battery um, or figuring out what are you spending your frontal lobe on and is that what you want to spend it on? So sometimes the quote unquote lifestyle intervention 
is getting out of a toxic workplace or leaving a bad relationship or moving so you don't have to commute for so long. Sometimes that's what you need to do to free up frontal lobe battery so you can spend it on healthy choices. And if those things are not possible for you, then you know we should be kind to ourselves about the fact that we are managing a whole bunch of other things our frontal lobe is going to all kinds of other things that we don't necessarily have the ability to change. And so to be kind to ourselves, that sometimes caveman mind wins. And that's just us being a normal human and millions of years of evolution in action. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's, and I love that you bring it back to like, it, it's, it's okay. This is just how we were wired. And so it's don't expect it, you know, to be anything that you can have all this control over. It was very, um, it was very freeing to read that in a sense, you know, and, and yeah. I really, and that's one of the things that I, you know, say to myself when I, you know, like at Christmas time, when I ate an entire gingerbread house, when I yeah. didn't need to, right. <laughs> I remind myself that is just millions of years of evolution in action. And sorry, yeah. you're not immune to millions of years of yeah. evolution in action. Uh-huh. That was your caveman brain took over. Your frontal lobe was busy doing all the holiday stress things and you ate the whole gingerbread house. And again, there's lots of evidence that when we can be kind to ourselves mm-hmm. in that way, we're actually more likely to get back on track faster, right? That there's a cultural yeah. myth sort of that if we're hard on ourselves, then we'll never make that mistake again. But it's actually not what happens when we're hard on ourselves. It basically activates our caveman mind. It makes the caveman mind stronger. And so it takes that much more frontal lobe to try to control your behavior because your caveman mind's kind of on fire. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. I love that. The self-compassion that you mentioned in the book, that is huge. And we, we again, we have it so backwards. That's why I think this is such a, a fresh perspective. Um, I do love, you have a lot of worksheets. You make this book that's very interactive that you can do as much as you want with it when you want to. Um, And you even (laughs) have those moments in the book where you say, I want you to do this exercise. I know you're not going to want to, but you need to do it. And so when you told me that, I actually did. Um, I listened and it was really helpful um, because we have these emotions, these feelings, these thoughts that sabotage our good intentions. And so maybe you could explain a little bit about that, how, how our passengers get in the way. Yeah. So there's, um, you know, an idea in the book called Passengers on the Bus, and that's the idea that our thoughts and feelings and sensations are kind of like passengers on a bus, and we're the bus driver. And sometimes the passengers sort of take over the bus and take us places we didn't mean to go. So I might, you know, have a plan when I get home from work, I'm totally going to go to the gym. But then, you know, I have a passenger that's like, oh, you don't have time for that. Or, oh, it's too cold out. You could just do it tomorrow. You're too tired, right? And so the passengers take over and I end up on the couch and, you know, not going to the gym. Um, those, ca- those passengers are basically your caveman mind, right? That's all the um, information from your caveman mind. And so, again, they're giving you excellent advice if you were a cave person, but it may not be who you want to be and it may not be consistent with what your values are and how you're trying to show up. And so it's about developing a relationship with your passengers, which isn't about, you know, kicking them off the bus, which is the most natural thing thing to want to do, but those are part of being a human, right? Feelings, thoughts, those are part of being a human, and so we can't get rid of them. So instead, you want to think about, you know, if you were a real bus driver driving around town and a passenger got on the bus and said, hey, bus driver, could you drop me off at my house? like the third left and your second right, you know, a real bus driver would basically say something like, no, sorry, I have a route to follow, right? 
And that's the relationship we're trying to cultivate with our thoughts and feelings and sensations, right? There's like good evidence that when we try to ignore or suppress our feelings or thoughts, they actually get worse. And so we're trying to acknowledge our thoughts and feelings, but not let them take over the bus quite as often. And the route we're trying to follow is basically about being consistent with your values and moving towards the things that matter to you. Yeah. And it all goes back to the values and, and finding those. And if you don't have those, it's going to make it a lot harder, right? To, to get the passengers off the bus. <laughs> yep. To manage the passengers. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, so tell me one of the things that you put, um, one of the things you wrote in the book was you are not your feelings. And oh, I love that. Um, one, because I have a teenager who very much believes that she is her feelings all the time. Um, but also I am kind of still a teenager in that way as well. Like we all can be run by our feelings. Um, so maybe you can share a little bit more about mindfulness tools, being more observational, non-judgmental about our thoughts and feelings, because I really, really love that. That's something I'm working on personally, and it was really helpful for me. Yep. Um, so, and just so you know, the frontal lobe is not fully developed in males until age 29 and in females till age 24. So 24. teenagers really oh my have, gosh. I mean, basically the, the teenagers, their caveman brain is on fire and uh-huh. they don't have a fully developed frontal lobe. And so that's why they're difficult to manage, right? And 29 for men? Yeah. Wow. To me, that explains a lot about young male behavior, but (laughs) just me being a little bit judgmental. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the thing about feelings is that, again, they come from your caveman mind and they are actually designed to make you do something, right? So the word emotion means to move. And so those feelings are actually part of your survival brain trying to encourage you to do stuff that would um, have some survival benefit. Mm. And often the message from our feelings actually is quite accurate. It's just that the advice our feelings give us isn't isn't that useful for us in our modern world. So for example, anger is a sign there's something you don't like. That's what anger means. So if you're stuck in traffic and you're angry, that's actually totally a correct message, right? There's something you don't like. You don't like being stuck in traffic and you're feeling angry. Now, the advice that, you know, anger might give you, which might be to like go attack people or yell or scream or to hit stuff, which again would be super adaptive if you were a caveman and someone was trying to attack you, might not be helpful in our modern world and about who you want to be. So it's not about feeling less. It's actually about making more space for our feelings so that they're less likely to take over the bus. And so one of the ways you can think about that is to think about your feelings like a puppy, right, or a baby, and that we're trying to take care of our feelings so that they don't take over our bus. Uh, we're trying to make more space for them. They're also like the weather. You can think about feelings like the weather. Um, and so they're like a tornado or a hurricane. But you're actually the blue sky. You're not the weather. Um, And just like, you know, the worst tornado doesn't damage the blue sky, you know, your feelings are not going to damage you. They're not actually bigger than you. They're in you, they're part of you, but they're not you. And so sometimes we're, you know, you want to think about how can you continue to live your life even when there's bad weather. Now, it's definitely easier to live your life when it's sunny and Mm -hmm. hot out, right, compared to when it's like snowy and blizzarding out. Uh, But we want to figure out how we can live our lives and do the things that matter even when there's bad weather or there's having an emotional storm uh, so that we're not at the mercy of something that we don't control. Um, And so, you know, and sometimes we know exactly why we're feeling the way we're feeling, but sometimes it just rains. Sometimes our mood just dips. Sometimes we are anxious for no reason. 
Um, and so sometimes it just rains and you're just waiting out the storm, right? If you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes. Your mood will also change in the same way that the weather changes. But we have about as much control over our feelings as we do the weather. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's so helpful. Um, tell me about the resources, the handouts, I already referenced them a little bit, um, that, that you put in the book through the website. Um, how can this, using the tools, um, how can that help make this experience more likely to stick for people who are reading your book? Yeah, so if you actually do the exercises, um, you know, you're much more likely to get something out of them and then to be able to keep using them. And one of the things we I talk about in the book is actually that, you know, our caveman mind doesn't like us doing new things. The way the caveman brain works is that the devil you do know is better than the devil you don't know. So it likes to stop us from doing new things. Um, now, that's, again, great advice if you're a cave person, right? But in our modern world, sometimes the new thing you're trying to do is mindfulness or going to the gym. And our brains are going to do the same thing, which is to try to stop us from doing something new. So it will, in fact, show up about stopping you from doing the exercises or stopping you from practicing mindfulness. And so we actually talk about that in the book, about how to notice your passengers, telling you you don't need to do the exercise or you don't need to practice or helping you forget um, so that you can make a choice with your frontal lobe to do the activities anyway. And so there are a lot of um, experiential activities, ways to actually practice the ideas that we talked about in the book. Um, and there are resources online. There's, you know, audio files for some of the um, audio kind of, they're not meditations, but kind of exercises, um, as well as handouts that you can use um, to, again, make it a more concrete experience and to get more kind of in-depth and um, active with the material. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so how can people learn more about you, get your book, find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, so the book is available online. So, you know, Amazon or any of those places, um, it's available online. There's an audio book now that's also available. Um, and um, so in terms of being in touch with me, so I have a website, it's drleebagley.com, and that's B-R-L-E-E-B-A-G-G-L-E-Y.com. And then they can also follow me on social media. So um, my Twitter handle is the same, it's drleebagley, D-R-L-E-E-B-A-G-G-L-E-Y. And also on Facebook, as well as Instagram. And I often, often am um, discussing these kinds of topics um, or about presentations I'm doing or about tips about, you know, being healthier, or those kinds of things. So they can also uh, follow me there and get some, you know, ongoing daily tweets about healthy habits suck. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love everything that you're doing. I don't want to ask too many more questions, honestly, because I want people to just get the book and find out for themselves because <laughs> it really is a process. You know, this isn't something that you're going to be able to get from a podcast interview. It's something that, that we all need to be able to dive into ourselves. There's, right. There's a part in the book about how, you know, building a habit, it takes 21 days to build a habit, how uh -huh. that's a myth. It's not true. There's yes. zero scientific evidence for that. And that in fact, it probably takes more like two to five years to build a habit because you actually yeah. need probably a full calendar year to see if you can keep mm -hmm. doing that habit um, during the holidays, during barbecue season, when you're on vacation, when like tax time, like, and so it's not, it's not until the second year that you even get a chance to try doing it a different way than the first year. 
Um, so there's zero evidence that it takes 21 days to build a habit. And sometimes people are like, well, that's so depressing. But the reason I want people to know that is they get to day 22 and they're like, oh, this is still hard. It was supposed to be easy by now. I guess there's something wrong with me. I'll just stop trying. And so it doesn't actually help them to think that it's supposed to get easy at day 22. It will require a lot of your frontal lobe battery to make these changes. And you have to dedicate that on an ongoing basis because your caveman brain is never going to change. It is never going to tell you to eat broccoli. <laughs> it's never going to tell you to go for a run. You can choose those things with your frontal lobe, but your caveman mind is not going to give you that advice. And that's not because there's something wrong with you. That's because you are a well-functioning human. And that is millions of years of evolution in action. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think so many people with the 21 day thing, it's like, we have so many plans, diet plans and programs that are 21 days or 30 days or, and I see it all the time. People are like, oh, I'm doing whole 30. I'm loving it. What do they do? Day 31, they go back to what they were doing before and get really sick and, you know, and it's, and then they continue because it's not worth rewriting that. So it's just, it's a more realistic approach to think that I'm doing these things over the long term and I'm not just going to go full force all at once. Um, so yeah, is there anything, you know, my, this whole podcast is called sparking wholeness because I want people to just have a more holistic view of their, of their lives and their health and well-being. What would you say, um, if you could give people one piece of advice, just one takeaway to spark them towards wholeness, what would, what would you say? Yeah. I'd say just remember you're actually a well-functioning human, right? All of these things that make it hard are because not because there's something wrong with you, but because it's working exactly the way millions of years of evolution designed it, you know, shaped it to work. Yeah. So, um, you know, all these things that we want to get rid of about ourselves that we don't like, that like we wish were different, those are actually all part of being a human. Most of them were not your choice, not your fault. Right. And so to find ways to embrace those parts that we don't like um, rather than fight with them, frees up a lot of energy to do other things that might be more important to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is so true. Thank you so, so much for, I mean, you just say everything so succinctly and you clearly are an expert in this field. And um, I really hope you guys check out her book. Um, and I, I think it'll inspire you because it definitely inspired me. So thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Sparking Wholeness. For more on all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul, check out my website, sparkingwholeness.com. Don't forget to be kind and subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. And to be really kind, you can leave a nice review. I like those.